Chrome Yellow by Aldous Huxley Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 8 Breakfast on Sunday morning was an hour later than on weekdays, and Priscilla, who usually made no public appearance before luncheon, honoured it with her presence. Dressed in black silk, with a ruby cross as well as her customary ring of pearls round her neck, she presided. An enormous Sunday paper concealed all but the extreme pinnacle of her coiffure from the outer world. "'I see Surrey has won,' she said, with her mouth full, by four wickets. "'The sun is in Leo, that would account for it.' "'Splendid game, cricket,' remarked Mr. Barbecue-Smith, heartily, to no one in particular. "'So thoroughly English.' Jenny, who was sitting next to him, woke up suddenly with a start. What? she said. What? So English, repeated Mr. Barbecue-Smith. Jenny looked at him, surprised. English? Of course I am. He was beginning to explain when Mrs. Wimbush veiled her Sunday paper and appeared a square, mauve-powdered face in the midst of orange splendours. I see there's a new series of articles on the next world just beginning, she said to Mr. Barbecue-Smith. This one's called Summerland and Gehenna. Summerland, echoed Mr. Barbecue-Smith, closing his eyes. Summerland, a beautiful name, beautiful, beautiful. Mary had taken the seat next to Dennis. After a night of careful consideration, she had decided on Dennis. He might have less talent than Gombold, he might be a little lacking in seriousness, but somehow he was safer. "'Are you writing much poetry here in the country?' she asked, with a bright gravity. "'None,' said Dennis curtly. "'I haven't brought my typewriter.' "'But do you mean to say you can't write without a typewriter?' Dennis shook his head. He hated talking at breakfast, and besides he wanted to hear what Mr. Scogan was saying at the other end of the table. "'My scheme for dealing with the church,' Mr. Scogan was saying, "'is beautifully simple.' At the present time, the Anglican clergy wear their collars the wrong way round. I would compel them to wear not only their collars, but all their clothes turned back to front. Coat, waistcoat, trousers, boots, so that every clergyman should present to the world a smooth façade, unbroken by stud, button or lace. The enforcement of such a livery would act as a wholesome deterrent to those intending to enter the church. At the same time, it would enormously enhance what Archbishop Lord so rightly insisted on, the beauty of holiness, in the few incorrigibles who could not be deterred. "'In hell, it seems,' said Priscilla, reading in her Sunday paper, "'the children amuse themselves by flaying lambs alive.' "'Ah, but, dear lady, that's only a symbol,' exclaimed Mr. Barbecue-Smith, "'a material symbol of a spiritual truth. "'Lambs signify—' Then there are military uniforms, Mr. Scogan went on. When scarlet and pipe clay were abandoned for khaki, there were some who trembled for the future of war. But then, finding how elegant the new tunic was, how closely it clipped the waist, how voluptuously, with the lateral bustles of the pockets, it exaggerated the hips, when they realised the brilliant potentialities of breeches and top-boots, they were reassured. Abolish these military elegances, standardise a uniform of sackcloth and mackintosh, you will very soon find that— "'Is anyone coming to church with me this morning?' asked Henry Wimbush. No one responded. He baited his bare invitation. 
I read the lessons, you know, and there's Mr. Bodiham. His sermons are sometimes worth hearing. Thank you, thank you, said Barbecue Smith. I, for one, prefer to worship in the infinite church of nature. How does our Shakespeare put it? Sermons in books, stones in running brooks. He waved his arm in a fine gesture towards the window, and even as he did so he became vaguely, but nonetheless insistently, nonetheless uncomfortably aware that something had gone wrong with a quotation, something, what could it be, sermons, stones, books? End of chapter.